In Acts chapter 23, I'm going to talk to you how some governors and kings in the presence of Paul trembled. And I'll, next week, uh, well, probably in the week after, uh, I'll, I'll, we'll actually have a description of Paul. We'll find out what Paul was like, and I'll give you a little uh, hint. He was a small man, probably bent over. The description that, that some of the early church writers of Paul actually described him as nearly blind. He was bent over now because he was beaten so many times. And because he had been shipwrecked three times, uh, because he'd been kept in prison for so long, not eating healthy food, he just was very frail. And yet as he stands before governors and kings, they trembled. I'm going to show you why. So Acts chapter 23, verse 31, we will start here. 23 and verse 31. Once I get there. <clears throat> then the soldiers, as it, was command, as it was commanded them, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the morrow, they left the horsemen to go with him and returned back to the castle where he had been kept, who, when they came to Caesarea, so they'd gone about 30 kilometers away from Jerusalem, and delivered the epistle, a letter to the governor, presented Paul also before him. And when the governor had read the letter, he asked of what province he was. And when he understood that he was of Cilicia, Cilicia was a city in modern Turkey, verse 35, this governor said, I will hear thee, I'll hear your case, said he, when thine accusers are also come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's judgment hall. So he's in a jail called Herod's judgment hall. Paul is in chains. And, and, and I've never been in jail, okay, and I... Don't think I'd like to want to go there. Uh, but Paul is now in a different phase of his ministry. He's serving the Lord, and now he's, in, he's being accused of all kinds of things. He's being mistreated. He's uh, going from court case to court case, and it's not fun. This is, this is Paul, okay? Now, he's one of the greatest examples next to Jesus Christ of how to live the Christian life. So when these things are happening, therefore, our understanding, there is an example of us as to how do we react when, we are, when things are out of our control. He no longer can go where he wants. He no longer can, can just do what he wants. He's in chains. He's uh, going from prison to prison, and he's being falsely accused. He's being accused. Uh, we'll keep, uh, yeah, we read there. He's being accused of being a traitor. The Jews had a list of traditions a mile long, had customs that, that would just put the hair on the back of your neck, standing up going, what? You have to do that? You have to do that and that? And here's Paul no longer doing any of that. And he's a traitor to them. He, um, he has gone against the flow. And you'll never know. <laughs> you never know how few real friends you have until you get saved. And then you don't go where everybody else is going anymore. You don't, uh, you don't drink what they're drinking. You're not talking like them. Instead of staying up all night on Saturday night, you're going to bed so that you're up on Sunday and you're up at church and you're going against the flow and your friends don't go, whoo, good on you. No, they're like, stop this guy. This Paul had become a born-again, Bible-believing preacher. And he was having an effect on everyone. He was actually, the Bible says that when Paul came to town, they said, these men that Paul was with have turned the world upside down. That's a great testimony. He's going against the flow. You know, the truth is, you're allowed to be religious. You're allowed to have your own beliefs. You're just not allowed to live them. Because you, if you live by the Bible, you will not do what everybody else is doing. You won't talk like everybody else. Everybody else will be on politics and you're on heaven. It's just we're, we're different. And when you go against the flow, you'll be made the enemy. So as far as the Jewish Sanhedrin, which was the government of, of Israel at that time, Paul had to be stopped. So they hire a fancy lawyer named Tertullus. And they've hired him to sway this governor that we've just introduced ourselves to here in chapter 23 
Uh, he says, well, I'll let the, your accusers come and present your case. Well, they're bringing a fancy lawyer with them named Tertullius. And this, this governor's name is Felix, and he's not the cat. Does anybody know Felix the cat? Anybody know that old cartoon from a long time ago? Okay, all right. Felix was the governor of Judea. Uh, he was appointed by uh, the emperor Claudius back in 53 AD. He was a cruel and an immoral man, as most <laughs> political leaders are. He was, and even, even this leader, Felix, was constantly under investigation himself for abuses of power. And he has, he has such an amount of power. And here's little Paul, and Paul is on his own. Paul's got no defense attorney. He's got no legal team. He doesn't even have the freedom to have uh, other Christians come and encourage him. He, outside of Jesus Christ, being with him, he is all on his own. You know what? He's ready. He's ready. He is living the life of a gospel preacher. He is setting the example for all Christians throughout time when you're persecuted. So we come to chapter 24 now, and Tertullus is the first one to speak. Chapter 24, verse 1, And after five days, Ananias, the high priest, descended with the elders and with him, and with a certain orator named Tertullus, who informed the governor against Paul. And when he was called forth, Tertullus began to accuse Paul, saying, Seeing that by thee we enjoy great quietness. Can you hear his tone? I'm kind of exaggerating, but I want you to understand, he's not speaking monotone. He's trying to put on a show. Seeing that by thee we enjoy great quietness, and that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence. We accept it always, and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. All right, now, before we go any further, I want you to understand, uh, to tell us, is by trade an orator. What does that mean? That means he's a smooth talker, all right? He is slick. Uh, even back then, they believed it's not what you said, it's how you said it. See, it doesn't matter whether something's true or not. It matters whether it looks good on YouTube. It's the packaging. You know, you can sell, you can sell uh, out-of-date Salami with a nice package. <laughs> Packaging is how things are sold today, not the product. When I go into a shop, Patrick, you know what I look for? What I'm looking for. But you know what most people go looking for? Oh, this is pretty. Oh, look at the packaging on this. It's the presentation. And this Tertullus, he knows if he can just package his words, he can sway, he can sway the, the, the governor. Um, this is what we call a high-powered solicitor. He, however, is not a smooth talker who's there for one purpose. Look in verse 4. He's there to lie. Notwithstanding, that I be not further tedious unto thee, I pray thee that thou wouldest hear us of thy clemency a few words. Now, has anybody understood anything he said so far? <laughs> This is how you talk when you want to impress everybody and say nothing, okay? But he says, give me just a chance to say a few words, verse 5. For we have found, now notice this man's crimes. Number one, we have found this man a pestilent fellow <laughs> and a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. A sect is another word for cult who also have gone about to profane the temple, whom we took and would have judged according to our law. But the chief captain Lysias came upon us and with great violence, police brutality, took him away out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come unto thee by examining of whom thyself mayest take knowledge of all these things whereof we accuse them. And the Jews who, and the Jews also assented, agreed, saying that these things were so. Listen to his accusations. He says he's a pest. Now, that's a crime, isn't it? <laughs> no. You imagine if that was actually a criminal offense. Man, oh, he's a pest. That was the first thing. Then he said, Tertullian said, Paul's a leader 
of sedition. Now, those were, that's, a, that's a serious word. Sedition is where you're trying to overthrow the government. This, this Paul is trying to overthrow the, the, the Sanhedrin. He's trying to overthrow the Roman government. He's a religious cult leader, you know, like David Koresh, like Jim Jones. He's a cult leader of the Nazarenes. The Nazarenes? Jesus of Nazareth? Yeah. That's how they labeled. You know, if they don't like it, they'll label you. The Nazarenes. And the worst crime was that he tried to profane, defile the temple of God. Now, here's the point. Now, I've seen these stop oil kids go and stand in front of a painting, and they take paint and they throw it right all over the painting to, to make their point. They'll stand there, still there and they'll glue themselves to something there. What are, they, what are they trying to do? Well, they're trying to make their point, but they're usually destroying something or trying to destroy it. That's what they're accusing Paul of doing. See, he was there to deface the temple. And we were just about to punish him. And then that brutal policeman, that Lysias, that Roman captain came in and violently took Paul away from us. And he commanded us to come before you. That bad Christian man is, 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 is against, he's against us and against you, and he ought to be punished. Now, Paul comes up. Oh, yeah, by the way, I would just say, that's the job of a lawyer. He'll take whatever he can say if he's, if he's a, 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 a prosecuting attorney, he will make you sound like the worst thing. It's nice to have a good attorney, amen, a defense attorney. But this guy is trying to make Paul to be the worst person who ever lived. And then Paul gets to speak. Picking up there in verse 10. Then Paul, after that the governor had beckoned unto him to speak, answered, for as much as I know that thou hast been many years a judge unto this nation, unto his nation, unto the Jews, I do the, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Now, if I've just been called everything under the sun, that's wrong. Paul's still got a good attitude, would you agree? I wonder who Paul is trusting, the legal system or God? See, the legal system rarely is on your side. The economic system rarely is on the little guy's side, isn't it? But Paul's not trusting that. He says, I'm glad to be here today, <laughs> and I'm glad to speak before you. As a matter of fact, Paul is pretty cool. He honors Felix. Felix is a pagan Roman. <laughs> Judging Jews? That's hard. That's like, hey, let's go bring a British judge over here and let him judge an Irish case. That's just not on. And yet Paul says, I'm glad to be here. I respect you. He says, now listen to my side. Verse 11. Because that thou mayest understand that there are yet but 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem for to, what's his word? Not to riot. Not to argue, but to worship. So in verse 11, now verse 12. 24:12, and they neither found me in the temple disputing with any man, neither raising up the, pe the, the people, like a riot, neither in the synagogues nor in the city of Jerusalem. Neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. All I did was I came down to Jerusalem to worship. They never found me arguing with anybody. I didn't cause a riot. I didn't do anything to the temple. And then curse comes to verse 14. Guess what he does? He starts to give his testimony. And he points to the resurrection, the most powerful force, more powerful than the Roman army, more powerful than the Roman Empire, more powerful than the sun rising out of the sky, is the power that God has to raise from the dead. Look there in verse 24, verse 14. But this I confess unto thee, I'll go in to confess my guilt, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing, here's the word, how many things? I just believe all things which are written in the law and the prophets. And I'm also guilty of this, verse 15, I have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just, the good, and the unjust, the ungodly. I'm guilty of two things. I am guilty of believing what they call heresy. 
I believe everything that was written from Genesis all the way to Malachi, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy is the law. And the prophets pick up with the next books with Samuel all the way to Malachi. He says, I just believe it all. <laughs> I don't cherry pick. I don't pick and choose which ones I like. I just believe it all. And that brought me to the place where I believe in the resurrection. I like verse 25, uh, verse 15. He says, I have hope towards God. You know, the resurrection, as I'm going to say, is a terrifying thought that when you die, it's not over. But Paul's saying, I'm on the right side. I know that when this mortal flesh comes back up out of the grave, I'm going to be with Jesus. Everything I now do is because of the resurrection and the coming judgment on this world. The resurrection is the greatest miracle ever. I think when God created this universe, I look at the size of this universe, the complexity of every atom, molecule, every galaxy, and I go, wow. But to God, he said, oh, by the way, I made the stars also. To him, that was nothing. I did that half asleep, God's saying. But when he raises somebody from the dead, we're talking about somebody who may be dead a thousand years. And he brings all of those atoms and molecules and cells back together. And he's back alive. That is the greatest miracle ever. And Paul says, you say, well, I've seen them die. I saw them put in the grave. I saw that person buried dirt on there. It's been 10 years. There's no way that's coming up. Oh, yes, there is. Yes, there is. Because I believe in the ultimate miracle, life back from the dead. So I follow the Savior who came back from the dead. You know, if Jesus could defeat death, he can beat anything. Amen? I have hope. So then he says, I have a clear conscience. Look at verse 16. We talked about this last week, but it comes up again. And herein do I exercise myself and have always a conscience void of offense, empty of offense toward God and toward who? Toward other people. I just, I just don't live just to offend people. That's a wild way to live. He goes on and he says, um, verse 16, 17. Now after many years, I came to bring alms to my nation and offerings. I just came to worship. Verse 18, whereupon certain Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with multitude nor with tumult, who my accusers ought to have been before thee and object if they had ought against me. Or else let these same here say if they have found any evil doing in me while I stood before the council. I already defended myself. Verse 21. Well, I better stop there for a second to talk about his conscience. To Paul, he seems to think a clear conscience is a good thing. And he says, guys, I know I've lived a mess in my past, but I put it in my past. I have, I have come before God as a sinner and Jesus Christ forgave me. And my conscience is clear. I'm no longer living the way I used to. I'm no longer like these Jews. I'm no longer politically, religiously motivated. I live for Jesus Christ. My conscience is clear. I don't seek to offend anybody. I have no desire to ruin or defile or destroy anything. I have no desire for revenge. I'm not trying to destroy the Jewish religion. I'm not trying to destroy Rome. My life's just an open book. I just want to be true to God and I want to be true to people. You ever tried to live that way? It's hard. Because we rarely want people to know how we really are. And Paul said, my conscience clear. You know, most, most people have what kind of a conscience? They have a burned out conscience. They don't really care what anybody thinks. They don't care how anybody reacts. They don't care how they live, what they do, what they say. Now, there's, there's, they don't walk around so that you're worried about everybody's feelings. But Paul says, my life, I live to serve. And if I serve, and if I am a servant, that keeps me humble so that I'm not trying to brag or put out any type of, of air about myself. The only brag I have is Jesus Christ. How powerful a clear, clean, good conscience is. Worry about your conscience. Worry about what goes on that you don't care about. Because we pretty well, we Christians turn off more people from the gospel than we let on. He goes on and he says there in verse 9, he says, I'd like my accusers to come against me. I want to face my accusers. 
who ought to have been here before thee. Where are my accusers? These guys, and they brought this, this orator, this lawyer here. Where's my accusers? Uh, Got to pick up verse 19. I keep losing myself. We ought to have been here before thee and object if they had ought against me. Or else let these same here say if they have found any evil doing in me while I stood before the council. Except this, except it be for this one voice, this is the only thing they fault me with, that I cried standing among them, touching the resurrection of the dead, I am called in question by you this day. Now when he says that, and he says resurrection, it trembles. It causes Felix to tremble. And I'll show you why. Because you are more than flesh and bone. You have a soul that will live forever. And you can live sumptuously and live powerfully. You can enjoy this world, but one day you will end up, just like everybody else, worm food. But that is not the end. And when a person starts to realize, what's it going to be like when I face God? See, the body we lay in that ground is going to come up again. And God's judgment is the most terrifying event. That resurrection is not all good. Unless you're born again, it will begin a, an event that you will face alone. See, Paul is not alone. He stands before a human judge. He stands before accusers. But a Christian, when we die and we stand before God's judgment, we have a defense attorney, don't we? Jesus Christ the righteous. And that judgment, Jesus says, forgiven, no condemnation. But if you do not have Jesus Christ in your heart, in your life, I'm not saying whether you're a good person or not, get rid of that thought. If you do not have Jesus Christ in your heart, you are standing before Almighty God alone. Take your Bible, you're in Acts, go to Romans chapter 14. To the right, Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14 and verse 11. For as it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then let every one of us, so then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. I wonder if you stand before God and God said, are you saved? Could you answer Yes, I got saved on the 15th of June, 1980, Lord Jesus. I was lost, and this is my Savior right here. God, I hope, I, 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 I hope he's enough. <laughs> Jesus said, I'm enough. Go to Romans, uh, Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. In verse 11. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Almost the end of your Bible there, just a few pages back. Chapter 11, verse 20, I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. When God appears in this universe, everything will disintegrate. Verse 12, and I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. Those are the books of evidence. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books according to their works. Did you notice the dead were alive again? Did you notice that? The dead are now standing before God, and they're being judged by the book of evidences that they have. You worry about CCTVs watching you. God's watching you. Good night. Long before they had CCTV cameras, there was the fear of God that God sees me. And I'll have to answer to God. God will catch me. It says... Uh, Verse 13, and the sea gave up the dead which are in it. There goes all those souls from Titanic and Lusitania and stuff like this. And death and hell delivered up the dead which are in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. Hey, you want to get to heaven by your works? Here's your chance. You want to be good enough to go to heaven? You better work your tail off because that's going to be your chance where you can point to, yeah, I was good here and I was good here. But see, you're only, only going to point out a few of your good works. And the Lord said, what about here and here and here and here and here and here and here? And the evidence will weigh against you. You're not good enough. So God looks in one last book. Look, verse 14. Death and hell were cast in the lake of fire. This is the second death. Wow, we've already gone through the first death, but we'll talk about that in a second. Verse 15. And whosoever is not found written in the book of life 
was cast in the lake of fire. That ought to terrify everybody. You see, don't worry about what I think about you. Don't worry about what anybody thinks about you. You know what you need to worry about? Does God know you? Are you in the book of life? You know, when a baby's born, they put a record. It's called a birth record. Well, that's one birth, but you need a second birth record. It's called the new birth in heaven in the book of life. If your name's not in that book, all your work's going to be judged and they will be found insufficient. And that terrifies people as it should. So go back to Acts chapter 24 and Felix trembles. Acts chapter 24, verse 22, and when Felix heard these things, having more perfect knowledge of that way, hey, you know what, Felix? Felix already knew about Jesus. The entire Roman Empire heard about this little backwards country called Judea where there was some guy named Jesus crucified because he was troublemaker and he's alive again. The Roman Empire knew about it. Here's a, a governor who knew about that way. He deferred them and said, when Lysias, the chief captain, shall come down, I will know the uttermost of your matter. And he commanded a centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty. All of a sudden, Paul, for the first time in two weeks, has actually got ability to have Christian fellowship and people come visit him. That he should, not, should forbid none of his acquaintance to minister or come unto him. He's still in jail, but he's got people coming. Verse 24. And after certain days, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Hmm, he says, tell me more about this faith in Christ. And as he reasoned, here's Paul, of righteousness and temperance and judgment to come. There we go. What did Felix do? Felix trembled. And he answered, uh, go thy way. Go away, at least for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. Those are the worst words you could ever say. Uh, I'll talk to you later when I've got some time. You'll never have time. That was the moment that Felix needed to get saved. That was God's grace put right in his lap. His heart was soft. He was listening. He was interested. And he went, this is terrifying. Uh, not now. Not now? What an awful thing to say. He, uh, he's been very kind. and He's given Paul liberty. I just like the fact at least he wanted to hear the gospel. And Paul didn't waste any time. He didn't. You know what Paul talked about? The climate. Did he talk about the economy? Did he talk about oppression of Jews? Did he talk about police brutality? Did he talk about love? Did he talk about anything except the most important things to talk about? Righteousness, temperance, which is what we're going to learn about in a second, restraint, and judgment to come. You know, where's the love of God? That's later. First, you better fear God, trust him, and bless God, you will love him. <laughs> we get it all backwards. We're trying to tell people, God loves you, God loves you, and he does. But that's backwards. You're in trouble is the first thing people need to be reminded of. Judgment is coming. Didn't waste any time. What's righteousness based upon? God. Well, I don't think I'm that bad. I'm glad you're not in charge. Because according to the righteousness of God, you are wicked, vile, and ought to be in hell. Amen. Temperance. Paul, when he talks about temperance, he's talking about restraint. Paul is talking about things that Christians don't do. And he says, we gladly don't do the debauchery and the, the way of life that you Romans have. He says, and we gladly give up those things and we replace it with better things. We don't, we don't live for the weekend. We live for the first day of the week. Amen. Paul's been converted. He's Describing how he's free from drink. He's free from drugs. He's free from politics. He's free from lying. He's free. Temperance is, I'm under somebody else's control. Instead of being under alcohol's control. Or drugs control. Or demon control. And then judgment to come. That's the terrifying part of the gospel. You know, Paul's being falsely accused. And you know what? In the end, he's going to die. 
those false accusations will stick and Nero will execute him. But as far as Paul was concerned, he has no judgment against him. His flesh does not matter to him. He's going to stay faithful all the way to the end. He's not worried about judgment by Nero. He doesn't worry about a Twitter vote. He's only worried about God's judgment. You know, when you fear God, you have the right to fear no one else. Hebrews 9.27 says this, As it is appointed to men once to die, and after this, the? All right. Death is hard enough. But you know what happens after judgment? We read it there in Revelation chapter 20. It says, In death and hell we're cast in the lake of fire. This is the second death. Wow. So the first death is bad enough. How many of you want to die today? Nobody. First death is bad enough. The second death is awful. It, death is final, isn't it? But the second death never ends. It is a lake of fire. There will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. There will be abandonment by God forever and ever. That ought to terrify us. See, why did God have to make hell? We made hell for the devil and his angels, but you're going there if you don't get saved. See, it's not fair. Uh, you want fair? Then you're never going to heaven. But if you want grace, God took care of your sin so you could be forgiven. You see how powerful that is? Here's Felix hearing the gospel, and Paul's not all, oh, it's all good news. It's all bad news, and then the good news, amen? Cancer, hospitals, a grave site is not as terrifying as what happens after it's all over. I mean, I don't want, I hate cancer. I hear too many battles with cancer, but cancer is not the end. I hate going to funerals, man. You're standing there. How do you encourage people? How do you face into problems after the one breadwinner and the one that was strong for everybody else is now gone? How do you, how do you just go into that? The truth is, that's not the end. And not everybody that dies goes straight to heaven, do they? So Felix trembled. What does it mean to, to, to tremble? It means to shake involuntarily. To shiver, to shudder. Go to James. Here's your Acts. Go to uh, James chapter 2, right after the book of Hebrews. James chapter 2 and verse 19. James 2.19, thou believest there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe in what else? You know, when Jesus Christ would come to the presence of a demon-possessed person, you know what that demon-possessed person would do? Collapse. Start writhing on the ground, and the devils would start screaming, We know who you are! Are you here to judge us? They trembled at the presence of Jesus Christ. Say, well, I tremble for no one. You will. You will? Felix trembled at all that. He was scared at what Paul was teaching him. Now, here's the truth. Felix's conscience has been awakened and stirred, but it has not been changed. Felix, like most men today, ignore the truths, and they recover from the trembling. Years and years and years ago, when revivals used to come into areas, man, I read of, of, of meetings up in uh, the Isle of Skye, and up along the Hebrides and up in Northern Ireland, I've heard of, of the preaching. When they preached, grown men would begin to weep and to cry and would fall on their, their knees. Their families looking at them as they cried out, I'm lost! There's no hope! Right there in church, man. We need that again. We need it where we, all of a sudden it gets us in our heart and we begin to panic. We say, is there any hope for me? That's what the, the, the Philippian jailer he hears Paul and Silas singing, and it wasn't all happy songs. It was songs of, we're saved from the wrath to come. And the Philippian jailer came in, and he fell down trembling, and he says, what do I have to do to be saved? And old Paul and Silas smiled and says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved from the wrath to come. Amen. Felix trembled. Now, why didn't he get saved? This is... This is wild. There in, in chapter 24, verse 25, uh, he reasoned of righteousness, Paul reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and of judgment to come. And Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way, 
I don't want to talk anymore. I don't want to listen anymore. Preacher, shut up. I've got other things to do. I'm never coming back. <laughs> Whatever you want to say. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. Verse 26 tells you what was really going on in his mind. He hoped also that money should have been given him of Paul. It's called a bribe. That he might loose him. Where have he sent for him the oftener and he communed with him? Well, all he was interested in was, Paul, you got a little brown envelope for me? Paul, if you just come up with some money for me, I'll let you go. Which was more important to Felix? His soul or his pocket? Which was more important to Felix? The guilt of an innocent man or his bank account? He's a true politician, isn't he? Felix trembled. But he didn't get saved. Money was more important to him than his own soul. So Felix does nothing for two years. Look there, verse uh, 27. But after two years, another guy takes his place. Porcius Felix, uh, Festus came into Felix's room. And Felix, willing to show the Jews a pleasure, left Paul still bound. So now he had only been gone in, in jail for about 12 days. And what does Felix do? He leaves him in jail for two years. You know, isn't that awful? I think sometimes, uh, I think some, sometimes justice takes so long. But I read my Bible, you know, when Joseph, young Joseph was in jail, prison. Uh, he was abandoned in prison for two years so he was brought out after the butler forgot to uh, um, remind Pharaoh of him. And sometimes God says, you know, I'll bring you out. Just trust me, I'll bring you out. And uh, Paul is, is forced to appeal to Caesar. Look in chapter 25, verse 1. Now, when Festus was come into the province, after three days he ascended from Caesarea to Jerusalem. And then the high priest and the chief of the Jews informed him against Paul and besought him to go against him and desired favor against him that he would send for him to Jerusalem, laying in wait, uh, laying wait in the way to kill him. Now, wait a minute. Two years earlier, there were 40 guys. Remember them? The religious zealots who said, if you could just get Paul down near us, we could jump the Roman guards, kill Paul, and be out of there in no time, and he'll be out of the way. And they're still trying to get Paul down and, and, and murdered. Now, I guarantee you, if those guys stayed true where they weren't going to eat, they're dead. Remember, they said, we will not eat or drink until we kill Paul. Well, then they're dead. But anyway, somebody else has filled their shoes. And, and I thought about this last night. They hate Paul, don't they? They hate him. They are bitter against him. And I wrote this down. Hatred and bitterness never dies on their own. They must be put to death by the holder. It never goes away. It has lasted two years now. They still can't let Paul live. Verse 4. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself would depart shortly thither. Let them therefore, said he, which are among you, be able, go down with me and accuse this man if there be any wickedness in him. Wow, he's saying, uh, let their accusers come up here and then we'll all go together down to Jerusalem. Verse 6, and when he had tarried among them more than 10 days, he went down into Caesarea and the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, commanded Paul to be brought. And when he was come, the Jews which came down from Jerusalem stood round about and laid many, many and grievous complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. While he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, neither against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I offended anything at all. But Festus, willing to do the Jews a pleasure, a politician always loves to manipulate the situation, says, all right, I better keep the Jews happy. He answered Paul and said, wilt thou go to Jerusalem? That would be very dangerous for him. And there be judged of these things before me, verse 10. Then said Paul, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat. Now, you can understand Caesar was the high court. That was the highest court to go to, where I ought to be judged. To the Jews have I done no wrong, as thou very well knowest. For if I be an offender, offender, or have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. But if there be none of these things where they accuse me, no man may deliver me unto them. I appeal unto Caesar. This is breathtaking. Paul is standing before another governor and he's giving his testimony and he's doing his best. And in spite of everybody still trying to kill him, 
He's standing there and he's got, he's, let me just say, if anybody should have been dead, it should have been Paul, and yet God won't let him die, amen? And here he is still going on saying, I'm just going to keep going all the way up. And in the process of this, he knows who's he ultimately going to get to preach to. This is breathtaking. You say, oh, I, I couldn't serve God if I was in jail. Can you serve him if you're in the hospital? You see, serve him everywhere. See, Festus tries to get Paul to agree to go down to Jerusalem. He says, I might accidentally leave you go with just one or two soldiers, and I'll join you later so that Paul gets killed. Festus doesn't mind losing one guy who's just a problem. But Paul appear, appeals unto this guy. He was a wicked man named Nero. If you remember, a few years later, Nero's going to burn Rome down and blame the Christians. He's going to play a fiddle, they say. He was a madman. And Paul says, I'm going to go all the way to him. I'll appeal to Caesar. Does he believe in justice? No. He's looking for an opportunity. If these Jews keep haunting him, he says, I'm going to take it all the way to the high court. Now, what is cute? We're going to stop with this. This is the final point. But what is cute to me is King Agrippa now wants to hear Paul. Verse 13, 25, 13. Oh, well, let me verse read verse 12. Sorry. Then Festus, when he had considered, con, uh, conferred with the council, answered, Hast thou appeared unto C appealed unto Caesar? Unto Caesar thou shalt go. And after certain days, a guy named King Agrippa and Bernice came unto Caesarea just to salute Festus. They wanted to say hi. And when they had been there many days, Festus declared Paul's case unto the king, saying, There is a certain man left in bonds by Felix, about whom, when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me, desiring to have judgment against him. To whom I answered, It is not of the manner of the Romans to deliver any man to die before that he which is accused have the accusers face to face and have license to answer for himself concerning the crime laid against him. That's normal law, verse 17. Therefore, when they were come thither, without any delay on the morrow, I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought forth, against whom, when the accusers stood up, they brought None accusation of such things as I suppose, but I had certain questions against him of their own superstition. And of one Jesus, which was dead, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. When I doubted of such, uh, of such manner of questions, I asked him whether he would go to Jerusalem and there be judged of these matters. But when Paul had appealed to be reserved into the hearing of Augustus Caesar, I commanded him to be kept till I might send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said unto Festus, and I love this, I would also hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, thou shalt hear him. Here's the point. God's at work and getting, here's a, here's a guy who's a Roman, and he's interested in a Jewish convert to Christianity. He says, this guy sounds interesting. I'm kind of bored. It's kind of, you know, my, my drugs have kind of worn off and, you know, I'm kind of recovering from all the drink last night, and I kind of I need a little bit of entertainment. You know, you have no idea who you're going to meet and start to give the gospel to, and they might just actually enjoy it and say, tell me more. Here is King Agrippa wanting to hear Paul. Now, I think it's kind of cute because Agrippa is a wicked man. He's the son of Herod Agrippa, uh, some of the worst abusers of power in Palestine, his grandfather slaughtered all the children in Bethlehem when Jesus was born. That's his granddad. Can you imagine going sitting on your granddad's lap? Daddy, what'd you do today? I killed all kids two years old and younger. It's a good day. His uncle murdered John the Baptist, had his head beheaded because his wife got upset. Remember that? His father executed um, the apostle James, had his head cut off. That's a family to be born into. Here's Agrippa. Wow. And Agrippa's about to meet Paul. Festus is frustrated. He, frustrated. he can't figure out what to do with this Paul guy. And Agrippa is curious. Folks, I'm going to tell you, the point is, there are people watching us and they're curious, what are you doing on a Sunday? Why do you have that Bible in your purse, ladies? Why do you carry your Bible to work? What is in that book? They are curious. Don't be ashamed of who you are, Christian. Don't be ashamed of what saved your soul. Can you imagine if Paul felt like, oh, I can't talk before a king. Oh, he's, he's too powerful. 
Agrippa's curious. It's fascinating to the Romans. Um, verse 23. And on the morrow, when Agrippa was come, and Bernice with great pomp, and was entered into the place of hearing, with the chief captains and the principal men of the city, at Festus' commandment, Paul was brought forth. Who's his audience? It's not a church. It's a room full of lawyers and other governors and mayors and muckety-mucks way up at the top. Paul's got the best audience ever. And they've all been brought to hear him. Amen. Keep going. Uh, verse 24, but, and Festus said, King Agrippa, and all men which are here present with us, ye see this man about whom all the multitude of Jews have dealt with me, both at Jerusalem and also here, crying that he ought not to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death, and that he himself had appeared unto Augustus, I have determined to send him. I'm not going to make up the decision. I'm going to send him on his way. Verse 26, of whom I have no certain thing to write unto my Lord. Wherefore, I've brought him forth unto you, before you, and especially before thee, O King Agrippa, that after examination had, I might have somewhat to write as his accusation. For it seemeth to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not withal to signify the crimes laid against him. Agrippa has no idea who he's about to meet. But the next chapter is one of the most powerful chapters in the book of Acts. Have you ever heard these words? Almost persuadest thou me to be a Christian. You know who says that? Agrippa. And Paul is, is in heaven. It's, he's in chains. He hasn't eaten a decent meal in forever, in two years. He is lonely. He stinks. He is, is tired. And he's being used of God. I wonder how far we would go and what we would put up with for the chance to give one testimony like we're going to hear next week. Here's a conclusion. All throughout this thing, Paul has been on track to preach the gospel to Caesar himself. Even, even before, when Paul gets caught in Jerusalem, Jesus says, don't worry, Paul, you're going to Rome next. And Paul's excited. This is his new direction. Now, only let me say this. Most people in this room, and most people I've noticed throughout Christianity, only want to serve God if it's an important and a prominent task. Pastor, what do you want me to do? And if I say, toilets need to be cleaned. If I say, so-and-so needs to be picked up. Uh, is there anything else? But God calls us to serve from the bottom up. How low you go will determine how high you finish. Think about that for a week. Every step of the way, Paul seizes an opportunity to preach the gospel. From the time he got saved, he preached Christ, whether in the synagogues or on the street corner. He just preached to everyone. When he was put in chains, he preached. When he was kept in prison and in jail, he sang. He just lived to give the gospel. And his persistence is paying off. He's speaking to ever larger crowds. He's speaking to ever more powerful people. He has no idea who he's going to be preaching to tomorrow. And the powerful were amazed. Festus was amazed. Agrippa was shocked at this little man because powerful people react to power. And when a little man who has little strength and maybe even stutters and, and fumbles through his words and is rude in his speech and is, is not much to look at. And when he speaks powerfully and full of the Spirit of God and it catches the attention of the powerful, they respect him. And Paul's full of the Holy Spirit of God. And if you walked into work tomorrow full of the Spirit of God, your boss will say, what got into you? Powerful people respect power and not brute force, not the... Not the uh, strikes and, and the threats of quitting, but the presence of Almighty God in your life. If the world could see that, your boss will sit up and notice you. You tremble yet? I wish you would. You better tremble because your soul's in serious trouble if you're not saved. Because God will judge both sin and sinners. 
Maybe not today. Maybe you'll get in your car and you'll be able to go all where you want. You'll be able to do whatever you want. Go to sleep at night. Get up tomorrow. Everything's fine. But one day, and one day soon, you will not wake up in this world. And the Bible says it is appointed to men once to die, and after this, the judgment. Are you ready for that? Say, I know all this. Have you, have you reacted? Have you responded? You've got to act on it. You must be born again. God is protecting those who love him and follow his son. He's already saved Paul. Paul has no fear now that he fears just one. But If you fear death, if you fear facing God, if you fear your past catching up with you, you need to get saved, ladies and gentlemen. I invite you to get saved today. Because there is such a change. There is such. You want joy? You want love? You want a life? Jesus is the source of it all. Let's stand. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, our modern world has demoted you down to the level of us. We kind of see you as an equal. Mankind has made God almighty into a tiny little God. People are more amazed at Marvel comics and at fantasies and fairy tales men don't tremble and don't fear you. But maybe in this room there are some people who still tremble and fear at the only and almighty God who is judge and one day will judge. And Lord, that resurrection is a wake-up call that this life, even though it ends, does not end. Our soul goes on and lives forever. Where will we go? For the Christian, to be absent from the body one day is to be present with you, is to be present with the Lord. But for the unsaved, it will be like the rich man, the Bible Jesus describes. When the rich man died in hell, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. We need a good dose of the fear of God today. We need a tremble of fear. And if our hearts do not tremble, Oh, God, please help us confess that we are hard, we are cold, we are numb, and our apathy is going to send us to a devil's hell. Oh, may people pray for a broken heart, for a sensitive heart that even the Christians in this room, Lord, we may be fine, we're on our way to heaven, but we do, do we not weep over the lost? Can we fear and trouble for them? Can we not allow that sometimes, God, you put us in hard, troublesome situations so that we might be a testimony and a light and an example and a witness to somebody else. Give us the courage to be persistent and faithful and consistent and joyful because one soul is worth it all as it was with us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.